about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way, it might be really good. Wow. to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series here to do the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're taking a look at Eternals, released in November 2021, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach launching an attack on Labour leader Keir Starmer, Martin Scorsese announcing the casting for his Grateful Dead biopic, or Jennifer Aniston promoting Vital Protein's Collagen Creamer instead. I'm Tim Worthington and here's what I had to say about Eternals after I saw it. Really enjoyed that. It's in severe need of a trim. There is some mumbled dialogue and some of the historical bits really should have been taken as read. But taking a group of characters that not even comics fans are that keen on and making them into a likeable and relatable comically superpowered dislike is quite a feat. That's what I had to say about it though. And joining me to give her thoughts on Eternals is Dr. Marvel herself, academic Miriam Kent. Miriam, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at DrMarvel underscore. Okay, so before we go any further, Miriam, what happens in Eternals? I'm not sure where to begin really because <laughs> it's it's quite a grand narrative. It's inspired by a kind of a short-lived series that was helmed by Jack Kirby, the kind of main figure or one of the key figures of Marvel who ventured off to DC for a while and made basically a comic based around the same idea as Eternals that was called New Gods. He went back to Marvel and and created Eternals based around this kind of space god theme, this sort of intergalactic space theme that, I mean, we saw in Guardians of the Galaxy and it's pretty much what Marvel has been specializing in. Comparatively few comics featuring Eternals. So yeah, it's kind of banking on that success of Guardians of the Galaxy as a film that was based on kind of unknown team properties, but you know, it's Marvel, so they can do what they want now. The Eternals are a bunch of superheroes, superpowered, godlike beings that were created by these kind of uber gods called the Celestials who essentially messed around and experimented on prehistoric humans and created these beings called Eternals and their kind of arch nemeses, the Deviants. Eventually, the Eternals, which you know, who are kind of always fighting the Deviants, kind of get around to living vaguely normal lives throughout history because they're also immortal, because they're, you know, godlike beings. And then they discover that the Deviants are maybe back. But then also they discover that the Celestials aren't necessarily as 
trustworthy, perhaps, as they thought. And yeah, I guess that's scratching the surface, but it's a big narrative. It's a big story. It really, really is. And because it's such a big story, you've kind of answered this already in part. But Miriam, what did you know about The Eternals before you saw this film? Yeah, I mean, as I say, it, Marvel can do kind of what they want now. They can use superheroes that nobody has, well, in mainstream terms ever heard of. They knew that Guardians of the Galaxy did well, and now Guardians of the Galaxy are, you know, much loved part of that franchise. So the Eternals are kind of a little bit niche, even within the comics. They've kind of had revisions throughout the history of Marvel Comics, just like any other superhero. So, you know, this particular storyline is based on a mini series from 2006 that was actually written by Neil Gaiman. And they've, you know, had various encounters with other superheroes like Thor. So it's not like they're completely on the periphery. And it's going to be interesting how it ties in with Thanos's kind of origin story if they ever go into that, because he's kind of related to the Celestial Bunch as well in the comics. But they're present, but they're also kind of inextricably tied to Jack Kirby and what he was interested in. And he was interested in not people <laughs> around this time. <laughs> a lot of his comics were about how people are powerless and, you know, relegated essentially. And he was into big grand space narratives. He adapted 2001 A Space Odyssey into a comic around this time. So it's a big sci-fi kind of blockbuster style narrative. He really, really was Jack Kirby. And that's part of the reason why I never really liked them that much as characters. Before, I, mean, I loved the Neil Gaiman series, but the original ones, there were three issues with it for me. Firstly, they felt a bit too masters of the universe in comparison to, you know, say somebody like Iron Fist or something. It wasn't really what I was looking for from Marvel. Secondly, I mean, you mentioned how similar they are to the New Gods. They are also similar to Jack Kirby Creations, the Inhumans, who I really didn't like. You know, he essentially had the same idea three times. And also, so that the absolute height of what fellow it's good except it sucks guest Gary Bainbridge calls unrestrained Kirby. Nobody's stopping him. He's completely playing with these big, epic, massive mythology spanning themes. And sometimes it can feel a little bit too much. And that's why I was really surprised when I found out, you know, I thought they'd probably turn up at some point because as we'll come back to, we had already had Celestials at various points in various, not really TV shows, but various films. I was really taken aback when I found out they were doing a film of the Eternals. I remember thinking, I wasn't sure about it, and when there was talk about the casting and when the trailer was coming out, I thought, it's going to stand or fall on what they do with Sprite. And I saw that first trailer, and I saw Leah McHugh being absolutely brilliant in just the seconds we saw of him, that out-acting the rest of the cast, and I thought, that's it, this is going to be good. And I think I was right, actually. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of glad you mentioned the Inhumans, because I got, like, weird Inhumans vibes from this. Throughout the first, I don't know, third or so, when it was doing the whole establishing the characters thing, and I got, like, flashbacks to that series, and I was like, oh my god, no, they, they can't be doing this again. <laughs> that feeling sort of went away after a while, which was good. But yeah, I agree. There are, like, a thousand characters approximately in this film and I do think it's like it's too much at times but then at other times it's not enough so as you say it's like Liam McHugh as Sprite this like weird child but she's like old because she's immortal and that's quite a disturbing yet intriguing concept and there's this moment where she's like why did they make me this way the Celestials and I too wanted to know the answer to that because you know it's weird but then it wasn't really explored which I guess is kind of the main takeaway for me for the film because it's weird and not really explored. Well the one thing I would say about that is 
that they clearly set her up because she was so good for future appearances. Just in case anyone who's listening hasn't made it to the end of the film yet, they might have just watched half of it because it's so long. We won't say exactly what happens, but there is potential for her to come back, but it's quite weird to look back on. You know, it's not even that long ago. That comic con where they introduced the cast when they were just about to start production, she's a girl in that. She is, you know, like a first-year secondary school-type girl. During the promotion for the film, when it finally came out, because, you know, it wrapped in February 2020, it was supposed to come out, I think, in the late summer of 2020, and, you know, obviously everything happened. When they do the promotional rounds, she's a fully grown woman now. So, you know, they could hardly reuse Sprite as she was in anything going forward. So they have set that up. So it might be explained, but I really enjoyed one explanation of this, which is I had wondered, because there's the whole thing about it's quite obvious why Captain Marvel didn't show up until the last minute. We've not had Adam Warlock yet, but he's on his way. No sign of Wonder Man. It was stopping bringing people in who could have just stopped Thanos. And I did think, how are they going to explain the Eternals who, you know, could basically have said to him, because they are his relatives, go to bed without your supper, Thanos. How are they going to explain that not happening? And they do it brilliantly, just we weren't allowed to interfere. And, you know, that completely works within the storyline of the film. So they are capable of doing those kind of explanations. So you do have to, I usually think, assume that they're holding back the explanation for some reason, or maybe they just forgot because there's so much going on. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they just forgot. I mean, I dread to think what the story bible looks like at this point i mean there's just a lot going on but you know that there's a lot of explaining to be done in a way this was like establishing the whole eternals world and and a lot of the criticism for it was like it's too much exposition there's too much explaining so i do kind of i get that but i also i got a strange feeling of repetition, not only with the inhuman kind of connection, but when they're like going back and, you know, getting the team back together and it just, it felt a bit sort of like Avengers vibes as well, which it's interesting because it's like, it felt so different to a lot of Marvel films, but then at the same time, there was a definite sense of formula there. Well, I also felt my main criticism of it was it is just too long in that I've no aversion to the actual length of it, but there was too much in it that didn't need to be there. And I think the main indicator of that is, you know, there's some great flashbacks in it, like that bit where you just see Ajax and Sprite country dancing. That is just like a memory. But then, in contrast to things like, all you need to say is that Fastos broke away from them because of Hiroshima. You don't need to then show him going, no, in front of the explosion. It felt patronising. It felt like some details were in there that just didn't need to be. Some explanations of things that could have been taken as read. And I appreciate, you know, we are dealing with a mass audience where maybe people aren't that clued up on history or whatever, but I felt that was what really dragged it down. Yeah, it was too much and yet not enough so much of the time. The other thing to really get out of the way is that again, this was really significant but it's been lost because of everything else that was going on and the critical reception, which again is something we'll have to come back to, but not only is it the first MCU property with a gay relationship and a gay kiss in it. It's also, unless you count kind of Jessica Jones and Iron Fist, which, you know, were aimed at adults. Some of the other series maybe had this sort of thing in. First ones have an actual sex scene of sorts in it. And it's interesting they did it with a gentle character. It's much more romantic than you would expect, really. And, you know, you look back, there are hints at things with kind of more sexually aggressive characters like Black Widow and Tony Stark and so on. It's only been hinted at Ant-Man and the Wasp. They really just get, you know, nice glances 
glances at each other. And it's interesting that they chose to do this with Eternals. Yeah, I mean, this film was so buried in all of the discussions that were having around it that I almost, I kind of feel sorry for the film. And I feel a bit sorry for the filmmakers as well, because it's like, there was just a lot going on around it that said more about the world around the film rather than the film itself. I mean, the hype about the sex scene was interesting in a way because it's, you know, it's a woman filmmaker directing it, Chloe Zhao, whose presence was also, you know, like a point of critical discussion. And as you say, it was an interesting choice of characters, but at the same time, it was kind of like almost a safe choice to have that sex scene in the film that was directed by Chloe Zhao because, you know, it's like, it's a woman's sensibility and it's like, in discussions, it made sense quote-unquote made sense for that to be there in this particular film but a lot of the hype around the sex scene I think might have something to do with this American kind of PG-13 slash UK-12 rating that we associate with superhero films which is associated also with that that kind of idea of the family audience but it's odd because there's also such an insistence on like the heterosexual union throughout a lot of these films so I mean there's usually like a coupling but then as you say it's like glances or like a kiss maybe but yeah I mean it's it's tapping into, I think, wider discussions that have been going on about like the adult appeal of superheroes as well. Kind of thinking about Deadpool's adult appeal, kind of hinging on parody and gross out humor and violence and also sex, right? Netflix's Punisher and you mentioned Jessica Jones. And these are all kind of geared towards adult audiences and they're marketed specifically as, you know, superheroes for adults, which seems to suggest that, you know, in terms of genre convention and industry practices, that any hint of sex translates to to kind of adult audiences. So I guess this is kind of complicating our understanding of target audiences in a way, but part of it I think also has to do with superhero costumes being as they are, potentially have connotations of like sexual fetish anyway, and that's an odd kind of paradox. And I think this is, you know, why in Watchmen there was this kind of explicit references element of superhero costumes as being like fetishistic and kind of erotic and aimed specifically at adults in that context. So it feels like a weird repression but it's also saying a lot more about social attitudes towards sex than actual superheroes cut okay everyone that was good what we can do 10% better, that was beautiful. Very, very good. Ah! <laughs> My friends from college are here. Oh, boss! Perfect timing. Welcome to the set of Shandar Dastane Icarus. I'm playing you. You like the costume? We need to talk. Tell the director I have some notes for him. We need to him. talk to you in private. Oh, Karan, he's worked with me for 50 years. I trust him completely. Actually, when we first met, he thought I was a vampire, and he tried to stake me through the heart. I have apologized so many times. Not quite enough times. Very close, though. I'll let you know. Oh, I have to get ready for the next scene. Come to my tent. We'll talk there. You, you guys are going to love the next scene. I come in on a wire because, you know, I can't fly. Wait, are we getting back together? We need to talk. The deviants are back. We don't know how many there are. You need to come with us. 
I wonder if part of the reason for the critical reception was, I'm not sure really whether they knew whether to pitch the finished film. More adults. It kind of in the way, you know the way they went to the promotion for things like Ant-Man and the Wasp was an element of this is aimed at slightly older people who've, you know, been through divorce and so on. But at the same time as pushing it as the next big Marvel film, there was an angle to that. I felt like they wanted to do that with Eternals, but pulled back for some reason, possibly because cinemas have been closed for so long and they didn't want to niche push it a bit. And I think maybe critics didn't know what to expect from it, which is why it got such terrible reviews. And yet even from that opening weekend, the disparity between the critic score and the audience score was massive. I have never really encountered such a big difference between what the critics had to say and what, by and large, so I appreciate quite a few people who are listening have made it clear to me they did not like Eternals, but mostly the fans had quite a positive reception. So I wonder what was going on. Was it maybe as well that they'd been taken a bit by surprise by things like WandaVision certainly took people by surprise. Loki might have done as well. Shang-Chi definitely did. Were they just looking for something to kick because they'd had to very hastily come up with a positive review of something they weren't expecting to have to garland praise on. Is it Marvel's worst received film? I'm fairly certain it is. Not worst received property because that would be inhuman. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. well, that's an interesting parallel, isn't it? But yeah, I think it has had the worst reception, really. I don't think yeah. the box office has been bad at all. No, but I mean, I think from what I gathered from my, you know, glancing over the general consensus of critics is that a lot of critics thought it was boring and too long and which is like it's fair enough but like there are elements of it that really work I think which we've mentioned but a lot of the critics also kind of invoked this idea of Chloe Zhao being kind of an artiste who is too good for a mainstream property which is baffling to me because I mean she chose to put herself forward for this and it was also you know part of Marvel's approach from the beginning was to have not big name directors attached to its films but a lot of it was around this kind of lofty ideal of like artistry that apparently is incompatible with you know mainstream filmmaking and big blockbuster franchises and Marvel's done quite interesting things and kind of redefining ideas around authorship or kind of reaching back to the studio era in ideas around authorship traditionally in classic Hollywood within that studio system it was the studio that was you know named as the author of the film to an extent it would be like an MGM picture and then you know, we've got Marvel Studios as one of the main producers of widely beloved massive blockbusters and, and in comes this like critical darling Chloe Zhao who was by no means like okay Nomadland was an independent film but I mean independent films are still you know distributed by big studios and like independent filmmaking isn't really independent anymore and the Oscars are by no means like avant-garde experimental filmmaking bastions so it was like an odd kind of construction of what counts as good based on what critics kind of felt about whether or not Chloe Zhao should be making this film for 200 million dollars and yeah you know if they bothered to read or listen to the interviews with her or particularly listen to the commentary on the Blu-ray it should be obvious that you know the amount of effort that she put in from an artistic point of view into it I mean the things that leapt out to me were the three things in particular she originally wanted to be a comic book artist and she was always as you suggested a big fan of the Eternals and you know she she talks a lot about reading almost the Kirby and Game Mum iterations at the same time, sort of darting between them, thinking, how can I get the feel of that with the storyline of that? The second one was she discussed with Camille Nanjiani that he should go and study Errol Flynn and like the old Zorro 
cinema serials to get the idea of his character being somebody who learnt acting when cinema first started and was still making films in the modern age. And the best bit of all was apparently, you know, they use, I mean, you'll be aware of this, but a lot of people listening might not be. They use false titles for films in production to throw, you know, spoiler hungry merchants off the scent. She called this Sack Lunch, which is the name of the film that Elaine is continually thwarted in their attempts to get to see in Seinfeld. I love that. That is the mind of somebody who is thinking about what they're making. They're not just doing it for the money, despite what critics might like to imply. And I think every bit of thought she put into it comes across, apart from maybe in terms of the finished edit and, you know, the fact that there are some elements in there that didn't need to be. I think it really, really shows. I think it infuses almost every second of it, apart from bits, as I say, that we didn't need. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly way more craft in any kind of Marvel film than the kind of mainstream critics would care to admit. But I mean, there was way more craft going into this film in particular than those discussions, you know, would suggest. But I think also this film is, it feels, if you watched No Nomadland and I watched Nomadland not too long before I watched Eternals which was quite convenient and also revealing and I had issues with Nomadland itself but I do think there are elements stylistic elements that were present in both of these that were you know kind of linked to Chloe Zhao or signified her kind of stylistic flair there was these kind of long lingering shots of these kind of wastelands or big expanses of landscapes with that kind of pinkish kind of purplish kind of lighting that it's visually interesting and, and unique and dynamic and there's a lot of thought that goes into this and it's just interesting that a lot of the discussion has been eclipsed by whether or not this film is worthy of that kind of craft and the other real problem with it is also one of its greater successes in that the main cast they are all brilliant you know there's virtual unknowns or at least they were at that point alongside the likes of Angelina Jolie Salma Hayek and half the cast of Game of Thrones but the problem with that is there's so many of them that they don't all get enough to do and in particular Druig and Gilgamesh get their big moments and then they're kind of almost hi I'm also here for the rest of it and in fact Karun who's a secondary character gets seen stealing lines like Druig sucks I don't know if he actually gets literally more screen time but it feels like he gets more screen time than some of the main cast the one that really bothers me is Makari who it's a real important positive thing that they've got a restricted hearing actress in the role you know it's a real step forward that but she doesn't get very much to do apart from sitting around giving the thumbs up running very fast and also revealing what the sign language of Thanos is which is brilliant but I felt that was a balancing act that didn't really come off yeah so I kind of want to know where they're going to take these characters because it felt a little tokenistic almost at times but I also I'm aware of a strange kind of tension that you know they're alien characters so how does our understanding of you know marginalized identities and LGBTQ people how does that kind of map onto these kind of alien civilizations but yeah I agree it's that kind of constant problem with team movies it's like who gets what screen time and when what do they do and what does that say about that character I want to know more about these characters so I'm curious to know where they're gonna go and if that feeling of tokenism is gonna go away well I thought it was very very interesting that Again, you know, trying to avoid spoilers because I'm aware that some people just have watched half of it. When the main threat is gone and they've actually got freedom rather than the freedom they thought they have, they start behaving much more like regular MCU characters. You know, you get things like in the scene we come back to, Druig says, can I help you boys? There's that, there's the bit with Cersei walking with Dane Whitman, who we've not even mentioned yet in the park, and she's behaving much more like... Cersei's the one that blended in more with regular human society anyway, but she's 
he's really just like a, you know, an ordinary passerby in that scene where they're walking in the park at the end. And it reminded me of something like Bridget Jones' diary, actually. Yeah, and it's... But it's interesting that they've clearly, you know, they've put them in this scenario where they've got their own narrative, their own history and so on. When that's all gone, suddenly they're part of everything else. Yeah, it's that kind of classic Marvel signature of finding the human in the superhuman, I guess. Whereas with DC, it's based more on kind of these archetypal myths and this godlike Superman, kind of literally Superman vibe going on. But with Marvel, their thing was like finding the human within the superhuman, which I think this film does really well, as you say. That does lead into the, again, it's interesting how it's played. The cliffhanger, in the sense that we get, isn't played like the rest of the film. It's not played with high drama. It's almost a bit comic and menacing. It's a bit Guardians of the Galaxy versus Thanos in tone. It's a lot more, I can't say lighthearted, because it's quite a menacing cliffhanger. But again, it's an obvious change of direction. I'm wondering what they would do with them next, because I can't quite see the whole lot of them. They are physically separated at the end as well, but the whole lot of them, you know, being headlining a single project. I think we're going to see different ones of them in different places. And that's going to be interesting how they fit them in. It is interesting. It does actually specifically say at the end of the film, the Eternals will return. So there's obviously some plan in place. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an awful lot of other stuff to get through before we even, you know, think about getting to the point of bringing these characters back together. But I do also think the post credit scenes were doing a lot of setting up in terms of their own kind of internal narrative structure. Well, yes, because the first one of those, now this is something that still annoys me slightly and not for the reason people are going to think when they describe it, which is it introduces, because we've got some of them off in space looking for the other Eternals. Suddenly, they're joined by Harry Styles as, I can't get used to calling him Eros. He's always been Star Fox to me. I will probably keep calling him Star Fox. I do apologise for everyone, but they introduced him as Eros. Him and Pip the Troll, voiced by Patton Oswalt. The problem was, you know, that was clearly intended to be a surprise. After the press screening, it somehow got out. Steve Wright just read it out in the middle of his show on Radio 2. You know, in that terrible, casual way, it just didn't matter to him that he was spoiling a film. He just read it out and chuckled and then played the record. I did the next day because it was his serious jocking thing. <laughs> I did send an email and say, great to have you ruin Eternals for me, Steve. Serious spoiler in, but they didn't read that out, sadly. Having been spoiled by that, I was pleasantly surprised. Well, I was actually thrilled to see Pip the Troll because I wasn't expecting that at all. And in fact, I'd originally thought, because obviously those two play a huge part in the original Infinity Gauntlet comics and you know there's that whole thing about Pip watching Alf the sitcom and crying because he didn't realise humans could be capable of such beautiful art but I'd assumed that you know it was a step too far it was too much well unrestrained Kirby that we weren't going to see those two but then I also thought that they'd never do a what if series thought they wouldn't bring the TVA into things and they did and they brought them in and I actually I like Harry Styles I think he's been great in the few films I've seen him in. When I went to see it though, there were some lads sat in front of me who were immediately like, RA, not him, I don't like him, very loudly, you know, because everyone must know for fear of they might be misidentified as Harry Styles fans. But after the heaviness of the film itself, to have those two sort of larking about, I love that. Yeah, I mean, my head was spinning at that point. I didn't know what to pay attention to more, be that Harry Styles, Pip the Troll, or the prospect of Thanos's brother, which is just like <laughs> that classic kind of soap opera kind of thing where it's like oh by the way this is this character's brother that you have never heard of the look they give to each other (laughs) but also what was harry styles's accent was that american 
ish. It's going to be interesting to see what they do with Star Fox because they did bring in the idea of him being a ladies' man in that scene. And, you know, that's something that's been addressed in the comics more recently where he's kind of been me too'd. <laughs> But the other post credit scene, there's quite a story to this. Immediately before I went to see Eternals, if anyone's listened to the edition of this with Joanne Shepard on Blade 2, I'd sent Joe a message about, she was asking a question about Blade's background, and it was explaining a few things, and I said, you know, Mahershala Ali's being cast, he's not appeared yet, they do normally introduce characters in other people's films and series, and then bring them into their own thing. There's a lot of speculation about where he'll turn up, some people say Moon Knight, I thought Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness. Went to see this, post credit scene, who appears but Blade? I guess it's a curveball, but I would have also assumed he would appear in Doctor Strange too, because that's supposed to be like a full-on horror style. So, and Blade obviously being a vampire and half vampire. That would have made more sense, but there was a lot going on in all of those post credit scenes. Well, yes, because he's finally getting his mention at last. The reason Blade appears is that Dane Whitman, brilliant choice out Kit Harrington as him. He's found out he's the Black Knight. I assume they're going to call him the Black Knight through patching things up with one of his family. And he seems very nervous about it. He's about to sell Cersei when she, let's just say she disappears. So it ends with him approaching what I assume is the Ebony Blade and being interrupted by Blade saying, are you ready for that, Mr. Whitman? Yeah, again, like, there is so much going on here and it's baffling how much they've kind of packed into these post-credit scenes. I mean, increasingly these post-credit scenes are gaining more importance and more kind of narrative relevance in a way, but I was just disappointed that Kit Harrington had so little to do for the rest of the film. Okay, so there's only one thing left to ask now, but in a bit of a change of normal, Miriam, because there are so many characters in this, I'm going to allow you to pick one Eternal and tell me what, if you had their abilities, you would do with them. Ooh, that's a great question. I mean... I think I, I'm a bit torn because, I mean, I like the idea of being able to turn, like, inanimate objects into other also inanimate objects, right? <laughs> like Cersei. <laughs> I also like the idea of, like, you know, being a Bollywood star to some extent. I'm erring towards Angelina Jolie's character who, you know, she can make weapons out of cosmic energy. But there's also this, like, weird sort of feeling that she's slightly hysterical in like the most Freudian sense possible but then also that's like weirdly empowering for her so I mean I'm erring towards that sort of power what I would do with it yeah I mean she can make weapons out of cosmic energy but maybe I would I would make some kind of instrument that could help me in my everyday life like a very powerful PC or something like that <laughs> I don't know Miriam thank you and Excelsior thank you so much if you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.